<clears throat> well, before we get into our work with the text this morning, I just wanted to share that this, this morning I got a, uh, a text from, a secure text from somebody who's serving in China, and they asked us to pray for China. Many of you are aware of the fact that the coronavirus is spreading rapidly in China. Over 50 people have already died, and there's thousands who have been infected. And as of today, the vast majority of the country is on lockdown, meaning that, that restricted movement about the cities and stuff is being restricted. Highways are shut down. They're doing temperature scans as people come and go, and they're shutting down a lot of the meat markets and a lot of other kinds of things. So it's a major disruption. And so, you know, just a couple of things related to that. One, it, it, it's going to be a, a negative impact on their economy, and with that, that's going to affect a lot of people in the livelihoods that they make. Um, it's affecting the house church because they just can't really gather together, move about the city. So there are many ways the, the believers are finding themselves isolated and outside. And so the prayer request that came through to me is just pray for God to bring healing to the nation and pray for the nation to turn to the healer. And so let's just take a moment and pray. And then we'll jump into our, our work today in, in the scriptures in Hebrews 10. God, thanks for the privilege that we have of praying. Thank you that we can have the audacity to believe that what we share here in the safe confines, the healthy confines of church building in Sterling, Massachusetts, can change what's going on in the history of the world. Father, not because we're special or because our prayers are really crafty, but because of who Jesus is and what he can do. And so, Father, we pray today in his name, and we ask you to bring healing to the nation of China. We pray that this virus would disappear as quickly as it emerged and that lives would be saved. Father, we pray for the leaders who are making the decisions on how to try to figure out how to contain it and to treat it and to cure it. And that's not easy, so we pray for wisdom for them. But Father, we pray more importantly that as a part of this journey, somehow through the ways that you work, through the ways that you work through your people, the nation would turn to you, the healer, and we'd see a, an expanding revival of the good news of Jesus Christ in China. So we pray for them today in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. We, you know, I, I told the first service that probably the passage of Scripture that has influenced my preaching more than any other over the 35 years that I've been preaching has been the, the simple statement of Jesus. He says, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And over my years, I've really always tried to focus on making sure that people understood the truth as a result of my preaching, because as they know the truth, it has the power to set them free. Now, saying that in a different way, it means that God's revelation to us, what he's shown us about who he is, and what he's shown us about what he's done, all of that is intended to change who we are in the way we live. Theology, what we learn from studying what God has revealed to us, is supposed to change the way we live. Faith ultimately is to become practical. Truth is supposed to set us free, right? And you see this principle at work in the epistles in particular, you know, the letters that Paul wrote to the Romans and Corinthians and Ephesians, and right on down through. Over and over again, you'll see them lay out, this is what God has done, this is what God, who God is, this is what that means, and because of that, this is who you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to live. 
The book of Hebrews is no exception to that. It's just taken them a long time to get there, right? We have been churning our way through the book of Hebrews since the first week in October, right? And we finally now are in the 10th chapter, and there's only 13 chapters, right? We're in the 10th chapter, and with a single word, he turns that corner from theology to practice, from truth to freedom, right? From what we know to be true to who we are and what we do in our journey. I'd love for you to grab a Bible. If you didn't bring one with you, there's one underneath your chair. Pull it out. The text today is on page 1067. So Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to start with the 19th verse. And we're going to go down through the end of the chapter, but I'm not going to read all of it together. I'm going to kind of piece it together as we go through. And again, if you're using one of the Bibles that's underneath your chairs, it's on page 1067. Those pages are starting to get pretty well worn. We've been messing around with them since, since back in October, right? So a few fingerprints in those new Bibles we bought over the summer. So the early parts of chapter 10, he's kind of summarized everything that he has been teaching about Jesus being better. And he really kind of brings it to a, a, a succinct kind of evaluation in verse 10 of chapter of 10. Verse 10 of chapter 10 says, by this will, meaning what God has in, intended to do, what God purposed to do in Jesus, we've been sanctified. We've been set apart by God through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all time. God has moved us out of darkness into his marvelous light once and for all in Jesus. And therefore, this is how you're supposed to go live. And as we look at these verses in 19 forward, 19 forward, there, there are three primary exhortations, encouragements, truths that he wants us to get and see how they impact the way we live. And they all start with the words, let us, right? Let us, let us draw near in a full assurance of faith. Let us hold on to our hope without wavering. Let us provoke one another to love and to good deeds. And so those three encouragements, and if you're taking notes and want to build a one, two, three, it's those three things, and they deal with faith, hope, and love. And those things should sound familiar, because not only did Paul say the greatest of these, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love, but we built our whole Christmas series around the way that we share faith, hope, and love. And here we get in, we see in the book of Hebrews that he's focusing, the very first thing he says, think about everything that God has done from the moment of creation to this time in Jesus Christ, and it's all about the fact that you and I can do something with faith, hope, and love. Now let me just read these verses for us, verses 19 through 25. I'll come back and make a few comments about the introductory stuff, and then we'll deal with those three let us, those three exhortations. Therefore... That one word changes everything. It's like he's crested the mountain, and now we're starting to come down. He's, he's finished all the theology, all the things that we need to know about who Jesus is, what he's done, what that means, and now he turns the corner. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we're a part of the family. He cares about us. Since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart 
and full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to our confession. Let's grab on to our faith, right? Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering since he who promised is faithful. And let us watch out for one another to provoke, I love that word, to provoke. one. We, we usually don't provoke one another to love and good works, do we? we it's usually just the opposite, right? We provoke one another. To, but he says, let us provoke one another to love and good works, not neglecting to gather together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other, and all the more as you see the day approaching. So let's look at a few things before we get into these Three let's let us, right? So he's turned the corner. He said, Listen, we're family. Let's have a family conversation. He says, and you need to draw, you need to be bold, right? To enter, to come into the presence of God. Now, boldness there is much more the idea of confidence than it is of arrogance or cockiness, right? You know, somebody's really bold, you know, kind of full of themselves. It's not what he's talking about. He's talking about coming in confidently into the presence of God, to know that we are welcome and he is ready to receive us, to come confidently without all those barriers removing. And I, and I used the example in the first service that, you know, back when I was 16 years of age, so that was a long time ago, I remember the very first time I picked up the phone on a Sunday afternoon to call Christina. She was in the youth group at, at, at our church in Sudbury, and, and I had been gone for most of the summer, and I came back, and, and I saw this cute new girl, and I figured out who she was and got the church directory. And when I picked up the phone and called her that afternoon, I was nervous. Some of you guys can relate, right? When you pick up the phone, you ask somebody out on their first date, right? So I, I was nervous. But the reception was okay, right? And it kind of grew from there. And we started dating such as we could since she was only 14. So date, dating really re, re, kind of re, was restricted to talking on the phone and doing some stuff as a part of the youth group, right? So, but, you know, after a while, there wasn't any hesitation to pick up the phone and call, right? Because she was looking forward to it, right? She wanted me to call. And what God's been saying over, I said, listen, I've done all this stuff in Jesus so that you can call. Pick up the phone and don't be nervous, Come into my presence, right? Come with boldness. And guess what? Jesus is there as the great high priest. He's ready to pick up the receiver and say, hey. It's, you know, communicating. This, this is what he wants us to do, right? Not to be hesitant, not to be fearful, not to sense that we don't belong, but to know that God is eager to have us show up and to come home. Second part. This imagery of this new and living way through the curtain that is through his body, right? It's very interesting what the author of Hebrews does here. You know, you guys may not really care, but let me flip. If you were here a couple of weeks ago and we're looking at chapters eight and nine, he uses the, the, the architecture of the tabernacle to point out a reality to us, that that curtain that hanged between the, whole, the, the holy place and the holy of holies was a symbol that there was a barrier between us and God. And that's what needed to be dealt with was sin. And so only once a year was the high priest able to go into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement and make special offerings for the sins of all the people. And, and 
But here he flips it. Earlier, it was a testimony to the fact there's a barrier between us and God, right? The veil's there. It's four inches thick. It's, it's weighs hundreds of pounds, and it's this barrier symbolizing that God is separated from us. But now he turns and says, let's look at it this a different way. In order to get into the presence of God, you've got to go through the curtain. And that curtain is Jesus, right? Jesus is the curtain. He's inaugurated a new and a living way. So Jesus is the curtain that we can pass through in order to get into God's presence. It's not supposed to be a barrier anymore. It's the access point. Like when this service is over, right, I would think that every single one of you, I don't think any of you are going to climb out the window, right? So all of you are going to find your way to the lobby by going through the doors. He's saying, Jesus is the door. And I, and I want you to walk through that door with confidence because I'm standing on the other side and so is Jesus saying, hey, glad you came. Glad you came. So out of this, he says, all right, so this is what I want you to do. The very first thing I want you to do is to work on your faith. Let us hold fast, right? Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Now, a couple things to see from this text. First of all, when he says draw near, right, you need to see that God is calling us into relationship. Knowledge about God is always supposed to produce relationship with God. This isn't about you just kind of learning certain things about God so you know the principles are true so you can go out and you kind of know what to do. But he's trying to draw you into it. You're trying to draw near. It's supposed to be an intimate connection. And as we do this, we need to come with a true heart. Now, there's lots of different things that that means, but, but at the core of it, it means this. He says, this is something that you have to want from the inside out. Remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, you know, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. When he's saying that you need to come with a true heart, he needs to say your treasure, the thing that you're passionate about, the thing that you want has to be this connection or this relationship with God. And with that, we grow our faith, right, as a part of this. And, 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 then he uses the idea of this clean conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. And really, in many ways, what he's talking about there is our conversion experience. That moment when we recognized that we were a sinner and who needed a Savior, and we placed our faith in Christ, we became a brand new creature. And with that, we, as we're brand new in Jesus Christ, born again to use the word of Jesus, right? We become new creatures in Christ. And with that, we, we have absolutely no evil conscience. We, we don't have anything to hold us back in our connection. Just like a, just like a preschooler running into the arms of their, of their parent, right? There's just no hesitation, no awareness that I may have let you down or, or offended you or I might not be, because it's just, this, you have this purity of it. And we've symbolized that through our baptism, testifying the fact that we've died to an old way of life and been raised up. We've been washed with the pure water. But it's interesting that as he continues to dwell on faith, that's going to come up in chapter 11. We're going to look at that next week because it's a great faith chapter. But here in chapter 10, he works on something very different. He says, listen, you've been presented with this opportunity for faith. Don't mess it up. Follow along with me as I read some verses for you. Right, verse 26. For if we deliberately go on sinning, 
after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire about to consume the adversaries. Anyone who disregarded the law of Moses died without mercy, based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who has trampled on the Son of God, who has regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know the one who has said, Vengeance belongs to me, I will repay. And again, the Lord will say, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, here's his point. He said, listen, you have presented with the opportunity created by the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you turn your back on it and embrace something else, the price that you're going to pay is huge. And, and, and you look at it, it said, if you want to put it in more very down-to-earth terms for us, it says, we never lose when we maximize our faith in Christ. You never lose when you maximize, maximize your faith in, faith in Christ. You always lose when you reject faith in Christ. So that's what he's really talking about here. You know, he's talking about people who have been shared, they, they've, they've understood who Jesus is, they've been taught about what Jesus did, they've been taught about the cross and sin and et cetera, and the fact that Jesus has been resurrected, there's a new life available, and they said, you know what, I'm not going to embrace that, I'm going to go do life my own way. I'm going to follow some other kind of God, whether it's myself or something else. And when, when that happens, right, he said it's just like the people in the Old Testament, Right? And he's really referring back here, I think, to Deuteronomy chapter 17, where, where, where God was instructing through Moses. He you know, says, listen, the people of God, when they're walking, and they're part of their journey with me, if anybody sets aside the worship of me, and they start worshiping the sun or the moon or some other kind of God, and they commit idolatry, he said, if there's two or three people to confirm it, in other words, it's not somebody just getting even with somebody else, if it's really true, said you need to stone them and not hesitate in judgment. And, and what he's saying here is that you think that was bad. We're not just talking about earthly life here. We're talking about everlasting life. And he said, and it is a horrifying thing to think of somebody having to stand in the presence of God and deal with their sin on their own merits rather than on the merits of Christ. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God and all you have to rely on is yourself. And, and what we see in this text is some of the teaching about hell. And, you know, it's, um, hell's, not a, hell's not a pretty topic, is it? Now, you know, it, it, first of all, it's not politically correct today, right? You know, it was just in the news this week, right? You know, when, when, when NFL writers don't have anything to write about because there's no games, they focus on all kinds of other stuff, and this week, if you remember, um, if, if you paid attention, there was renewed focus on, the, on the, um, the breakdown in the family relationship of Aaron Rodgers. And part of what he was saying is that, you know, it's like he, he kind of alienated himself from their family because they're, they're a church-going family. And his parents believe in the scriptures. 
I don't know all the details behind it, but in his particular mindset, it was like, you know, the whole thing, I was growing up, it just didn't seem fair to me. It just didn't seem just. I couldn't understand how a loving God could send anybody to hell. And so he's kind of turned his back on all of that. And, and which has created this barrier between him and his family. Now, all that story aside, I mean, that's something that we deal with all the time, right? And listen, my very first statement, if, if we as the believers in Jesus Christ should find hell very troubling. It should not be something that we talk about with any sense of glee or joy or anything else. It is an awful thing for anybody we know or anybody that we don't know to face an eternity based upon simply what they've accomplished rather than what Jesus has accomplished. And hell should be something that breaks our hearts. It should also compel us to action. But to be very clear, hell is, is, is when Jesus taught about hell. And he never rejected the idea of eternal judgment as a part of his teachings about hell. So if you're going to reject that part, you really have to reject almost all that he said then. Right? And so you look at it. Secondly, if there really is no hell, then why did Jesus need to die in the first place? Couldn't he just come and just lived a really great life and showed us how to do everything, and et cetera, because we're all going to go to heaven in the end? Why did he have to suffer for sin if there is no hell? And the fundamental th thing that our, our, our faith resolve, revolves around, the cross and the empty tomb, all of that is totally unnecessary because there is no hell, but God just kind of did it because he wanted to. Let me just torture my kid, right? Because it seems like a good thing to do. I mean, so it's a part of it. On the other end, and this gets more into an apologetic conversation. We don't have lots of times to go in this direction because really the, the major warning is, hey, listen, don't toil around with faith. Maximize it. Don't reject it. But in the midst of all of this, I mean, you think about it for a minute. There isn't a way, really, I think, for us to believe in a loving God and not have some belief in a sense of justice, Right? Let me just process, right? If there is no hell and everybody gets to go to heaven, does it seem fair to you that the people who never embraced Christ as their Savior and Lord and were the perpetrators of the Rwandan genocide, does it seem fair to you that they get to go to heaven when the rest of us are going to be there as well? These guys who who orchestrated the killing of 800,000 people in 100 days. The guys who picked up little children by their ankles and beat their heads against brick walls to kill them. Do you think it seems just that God would say, you know, eh, that's not a big deal. Just come on in anyways. Does that seem right to you? Right? Fundamentally, a part of love has to be some kinds of justice. Now, where is the good enough to get in? Well, God set that standard for himself. But that kind of concept is there. And, but again, his warning is, listen, God has created this up. Don't toy around with it. Don't, do Don't reject faith. Embrace it. Draw near, right? With a true heart, a heart that really wants it. Because there's a God who's waiting for you. And so a full assurance that you are welcome. Come and draw this intimate connection with God. Second point. Second, let us, right? Let us hold on. Verse 23, to the confession of our hope without wavering. See, he who promised is faithful. Some of these terminologies in here is really great. I took a flight one time with somebody who was afraid of flying and afraid of heights. And so they were terrified. 
while we were flying, right? And it's a long flight. And, and I, I swore that by the time we landed, they were going to crush the arms of their chair. You know, you, know, you, you know what I'm talking about? They're just... You know? And some of you have had a little experience. Your, your little child is afraid of whatever. They grab onto your leg and you think your, numbs, your leg's going to fall off because there's no blood flow and they're grabbing it so tight because they're afraid. He said, man, you know, grab onto your faith with this, and hold on to your hope but this is what it's going to accomplish. And the reason you do that is because he who promised is faithful. Say that with me. You guys need to wake up a little bit. He who promised is faithful. Let's try it one more time. He who promised is faithful. And, the, and what he says, hey, guys, you already learned this. He says, you already learned this truth. Look at me in verse 32, and we'll read quickly through here. He says, remember the early days when after you had been enlightened, other ones, once they become believers, following after Christ, you already endured hard struggles with sufferings. Some of you were publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions. You were dragged out in the midst of the crowd, and you were ostracized and persecuted and abandoned, right? And others of you were companions of those who were treated that way. You watched your friends go through it. For you sympathized with the prisoners and accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions. In other words, people got thrown into jail because they were believers in Christ, and as a part of that, the government said, what you own is now ours. Just like when we arrest people now for drug deals, right? I think, you know, anything that they suspect that was bought with the proceeds from illegal drug dealing, they're able to seize that stuff. House, cars, et cetera, all that kind of stuff. Rolex watches, they take all of that stuff, right? And then they resell, they're able to confiscate it as a part of the, of, of the thing. Same thing. You guys were arrested, you were put in prison, and they came in and they took everything that you had, right? It says... But what did you do? Because you had hope, the latter part of verse 34, because you know that you, 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 that you yourselves have a better and enduring possession. What they knew to be true about the future impacted the way that they lived in the present. They had hope. He said, don't give that up. Cling to it. Grab onto it. Hold onto it. Jesus has made it possible for us to be a people who live in the present because of what's coming to us in the future. It's, it's powerful stuff. And it's a great question for us. To ask, are we really living today in light of the future? Is the kingdom of God in eternity changing the way today that we are relating to people, the way we're spending our money, the way we're planning our careers, the way we are allotting our time? It says, man, cling to your hope. Let it affect the way you make decisions in the day and day. The last thing he says, and let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works. Faith, hope, love, right? I love this word provoke, right? Inspire, to love and good works, to, be, to have a love for God, to have a love for one another, and to do the good works that reveal our Father who is in us, right? That he talks about the whole the whole salt and light piece. Not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other all the more as you say the, see the day draw near. Now, let me just make this connection. And, and I find this fascinating for myself, right? For you, I, you may blow it off. That's okay. But I find this fascinating for myself. Here's the author of Hebrews, right, who's been laying out the grandest truths about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And when he gets around to talk about the number one way 
that we can encourage and inspire one another in our walks with God to love and to do the works that flow from that love for God. The only thing that he mentions is make sure you meet together. Right? Make sure you meet together. The ministry of presence. Right? So just look at the person next to you and say, hey, thanks for being here today. <laughs> right? Because he said that's the number one way that you show love for one another is you actually show up and are present, etc. You know, I got, I got an email this week from somebody who responds to my column. They said, you know, hey, you know, somebody in their family had passed away and they were calling hours on, on an evening and then they had a private burial for just family the day after. And he said it was, it was remarkable to them that, that he's the only one in his family that goes to church, has a faith in God through Christ. And his family said, there were so many of your church family that came through here during the calling hours. You know, and they'd say, well, how do you, you know, how do you know Alan? Well, we go to church together. And they'd say, oh, yeah, 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 oh, sorry about that. You know, in other words, saying, we're sorry, you have to have Alan at your church. They were picking on But, you know, the whole thing, the ministry of presence, right? And listen, this is a huge word for us today because we live in a time when a lot of people would just say, well, you know, I just, I'll just download the message, right? I'll do, and I'm grateful that we have hundreds of, of downloads of our audio message and our videos every single week. I'm glad that the gospel's going outside of these four walls. Don't get me wrong, but we live in a time when average church attendance is once a month. Average church attendance is once a month among those who say that they believe in Christ. Now, sometimes there's legitimate reasons, and for those who've been around long enough, you know that I'm not one of these legalist guys that are always being, hey, you can always go. You know, you go on vacation, it's okay to miss a Sunday. If you've got four weeks of vacation, it's okay to miss several weeks, right? You know, if you're sick, you've got to work, all that kind of stuff. If it's a safety issue, don't come, right? Stay home if it's too snowy or icy or whatever for you. That's not the point. But the point is, when you and I, in our discretionary choices, choose not to come, what we're saying to the rest of the body of Christ is, Jesus isn't that important to me and neither are you. That's what he's saying. Right? He says one of the ways that we say that Jesus is important and that the people who are connected with Jesus are important to me, that I love them, is by actually showing up and being present. Right? And that's a hard thing. Right? It's, a, it's, a, it's a big word. And, 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 and so I, I'm not trying to meddle step on anybody's toes, but out of all the things he could have talked about, right? You could have talked about praying for people or showing up and having to move on a Saturday when I got to go from one apartment to another or doing this and that. There's lots of ways to serve one another and inspire and encourage them. And the one thing that he draws to is make sure you show up because that's the foundational way that you show that you love Jesus and that you love the people who are part of your spiritual family. You know, it's really interesting. You know, I, I've been here 17 years. We've had, we've had a, a number of individuals who have served as elders. Many, and, and, and all of them have served very, very well. Great, just, we've always had great elder teams. And they've been great counselors to me, great supports to me, great challengers to me. And many of them, even to this day, are vital friends on a weekly basis with me. But we've had a few, you know, some, we've had several that have retired and moved away. We've had some others who've just moved away and, and, and serve in, in other places. 
We've had several who've been on our team who somewhere along the line came to me and said, you know, I really feel like I need to invest my ministry in another place, right? And so they've gone other places and worshiping with other churches and sharing their gifts there. But there's a couple that just drifted away. And as far as I know, they go nowhere now. You know, and, and, and when I, every time I think about it, it just deflates my spirit, right? And, and, and you know, part of it, you think, well, did I do something? Could I have done something? All those kinds of things. And those are appropriate feelings. But on the other side of it, you just get that you, you see what he's talking about. When somebody who's there, who's not there, who is a part of the connection, it just weighs on you, right? It's like, and, and it just pulls you. Says, but your presence is just the opposite, right? By being present, you, you, there's that encouragement, that provoke, Provocation, that's the right word, right? I'm going to say provokeness, but that would just be me speaking with the gift of tongues, right? Because I don't think provokeness is a word, is it? We got any English majors in here? So every once in a while I speak in tongues and invent new words, but, but in the rest of the time, it, it, but it, you know, the provocation to love, right? And, and, and so this is, a, this is a major element that's a part of it. And it's fascinating to me of all the things that he could have highlighted, he said in the moments when our spiritual journey is hard, the number one way that we love is the ministry of presence. Just show up and find a way to encourage somebody to love God a little bit more deeply and to show it through their good works and the way they love other people. It's a powerful word to us. Everything that Jesus has done has made it possible for you and I to love in that way. I need to wrap it up. Our time is running away. I, I want to give you three kind of thoughts, right, to, to maybe think about this week. I, I hope the conversation with this text isn't over as a result of today. So a couple things that I'd really love for you to think about as we move forward, right? First of all, we're going, getting ready to go into the season in just a few weeks where we're going to celebrate the passion of the Christ, right? We're going to go into Lent, which is going to lead us down into Holy Week, the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all the pieces that go with that, the passion of Christ. Let me ask you this question. Is your passion for Christ proportional to the passion, the cost that he went through in order to make that possible? In other words, when you think about what Jesus had to go through, the price that he paid, is your passion for faith proportional to that? It's a really interesting kind of question. Secondly, we've read this passage, this troubling passage about what happens to people who have to stand before God based on their own, their own merits. It's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of, a, of, an angry, of the living God. The question for us is, how much urgency we, do we really have in sharing our faith with other people? How much urgency do we really have for the lost who are around us. And, and, I, and, and I, I'll pour a lot of fingers in my, it's really easy to get stuff revolving around myself, right? The challenges I have, the needs that I have, the stuff I gotta do, all that stuff. It's so easy. Where, where's our urgency to share with the lost? Then lastly, How is your future reality changing the way that you're living today? How is the future reality of eternity transforming the way that you're living your Monday through Saturday today? I want to conclude with the very last verse 
of chapter 39, uh, verse 39 of chapter 10. Be my closing word and we'll, we'll flow into prayer. And I pray that this is true of us. That we are not those who draw back and are destroyed. But we are those who have faith and are saved. Because he who promised is faithful. Let us not be the people who draw back. But let us be the people who have faith and are saved. Because he is faithful. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word today. There's a lot here. As always, Father, let us be a people. Let us be the people who heed your invitation to draw near, to hold fast, and to provoke. Let us be the people who have faith and are saved because we believe that he you promised is faithful. And I pray it in the name of the one who demonstrated that faithfulness. Jesus Christ, amen.